Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, the New Statesman's web editor, standing in for your usual host, Helen Lewis, because she's on holiday. She's very lucky. This week, George Eaton, who edits our politics blog, The Staggers, talks to the Conservative campaigner, David Skelton. I talk to the NS's science columnist, Michael Brooks, and our junior space correspondent, Alex Hearn, about the search for alien life. Our online writer, Alex Andreu, comes in to tell us about the current situation in Greece, and Eleanor Margolis rails against the horrors of music festivals. First up, we have George's interview with David Skelton, in which they discuss his ideas to bring about a resurgence in support for the Conservatives in the north of England and among working-class voters. All we can say is, good luck to you, David. Over to you, George. So, David, the new group, Renewal, which you've founded, is designed to increase support for the Tories among uh, those who live in the north, uh, ethnic minorities... Uh, working class voters. Why do you think it is that the Tories have struggled among these groups in recent elections? The Tories have historically struggled amongst this group of voters, as you say, particularly in recent elections. Um, partially because of this perception that they're seen, still seen as the party of the rich. Um, partially because of the perception amongst ethnic minority communities that they didn't necessarily understand or even in some cases welcome those communities. Obviously that's changed in recent times. But there are, and, and also in some nor- northern areas, the legacy of deindustrialization, the legacy of mass unemployment has meant the Tories have had a much tougher job winning votes in places like the North and the Midlands and Scotland, obviously, um, in recent years. So, but I think there are real opportunities for the Conservatives as well. If you look at the way the, um, particularly the skilled working class vote for Labour has collapsed in recent elections, uh, if you consider the fact that the gap between Labour's leadership and the traditional vote in policy terms is growing wider and wider. Um, if the Conservatives can really tackle these challenges and make a lot of these groups of voters really think to think again about voting Conservative, there's a real opportunity for the party. And what are the sort of policies you think um, could revive the Tories' fortunes? I think there's various groups of policies which, which can tackle this kind of party of the rich issue and also the party of unemployment issue. Um, the first is, well, I, I think it's probably also important to say that an awful lot of things that this government is doing are very much going down the right direction. Things like taking the poorest out of tax altogether, uh, the people premium, um, 
and also the education reform danger of improving the life chances of the poorest are very important in terms of this kind of conservative agenda. But I would say there are a few sets of policies which can really help the conservatives to to make these groups of target voters think again about voting conservative, make them think twice, whereas previously they might have just written off the party. Um, the first is really being seen as a party of job creation, a party that tackles unemployment, uh, particularly in those parts of the country which have had a legacy of unemployment since the industrialization of the 70s, 80s and, and onwards, uh, which is why we think the, the kind of old solutions have failed. So there's, need, there's a need for a much more radical approach to creating jobs in the northern cities, in Midlands, in, in Scotland. Uh, so we would devolve planning power, devolve some conditionality of welfare powers to, to the great northern city so they can be the engine of economic renaissance. As Preston, which is the third biggest um, job creator of any UK city over the past 10 years have shown, if you have good transport links, if you've got a loose liberal planning, planning laws and policy, that can be a good engine of growth. And it's also an, a need that you might have to look at some kind of industrial policy. The, the government needs to make sure that the right transport infrastructure is in place, the right digital infrastructure is in place to make sure these towns and cities can grow. And it's absolutely vital that the Conservatives are seen as the party that's created jobs, the party of job creation, and the party that is determined to tackle unemployment, which creating a negative of being associated with unemployment, but being a positive of being associated with job creation. The second element is around being the party of the low paid. I think Conservatives got badly wrong before the minimum wage was introduced. Um, when they held out against the minimum wage, um, and that made the party look look slightly mean, look, look not on the side of low-income voters. It made the party look on the side just of the small businessman, not on the side of the person who works and, and the checkout, person who works night shift, for example. Um, so, so I think the Conservative Party needs to build on taking the poorest out of tax altogether, and it needs to think about how it can do things like raise a minimum wage without impacting jobs, for example, by uh, doing something, reducing employers' taxes at the same time, um, but really being seen as a party that cares about the low paid and that is is aiming to raise real incomes for everybody. Uh, third element is about being the party that stands up against vested interests, whether they're public sector trade unions who, who want to block necessary reform or private sector monopolies that are seen as ripping off the consumer. It, it, it's essential to conservatives stand up for the consumer when big, big business looks like they're ripping off the consumer. And it's essential that the conservatives say that private sector good, public sector bad is too simple, but competition in the private sector is what drives innovation, drives growth. And there should be much more dynamism towards making sure that competition and d does help the consumer and also providing the right kind of information for the consumer so that the consumer is empowered to act as an active consumer and to make sure that big business isn't ripping them off. Fourth element, I think, is about house building. We've got over a million people on the housing list. Um, the average age of first-time buyer is now 37. If you look historically where the Conservatives have managed to broaden their appeal, house building, housing has always been a crucial part of that. Uh, Macmillan in the 50s, Thatcher in the 80s. Um, had housing as an absolutely central part of, of their aspirational appeal. And I think the Conservatives need to start 
say the country needs to get building again. Um, Conservatives need to be seen as on the side of the of the young people who want to get on the housing ladder, of the people who are on the waiting list, and they need to be really really be seen as a party of of house building. And there's another element as well, which is if you look at a lot of the big battleground seats the Conservatives need to win. A lot of those have an above average proportion of public sector workers and also above average proportion of trade union members. Uh, so I think it's important that the Conservatives get the rhetoric right that yes, ministers might disagree with trade union leaders, but trade union leaders don't always or sometimes ever represent their members politically. Last week when Ed Miliband was talking about reforming the levy, a few of the unions came out and said only about 10 or 20% of their members would subscribe to Labour if they had a choice. And that just shows that there's an opportunity there for the Conservatives to, to appeal to trade union members who, who may be Conservative by instinct, but need to see the, the Conservative Party who understands them, stands up for, for ordinary working people. And that's an important element as well, which is why we say we, we take the reforms to the levy even, even further. We give tra ordinary trade union members a choice about where their levy would go they could, if they want, donate it to the Conservative Party. And that would create so much more competition and would create an incentive for the Conservatives to appeal to trade unionists as well. Um, we found a poster from 1978 as part of this uh, launch. The poster was why trade unionists should vote Conservative. And they actually did. More, more trade unions voted for Thatcher than Callaghan in 79. So it, this kind of agenda has worked before. And the Conservatives have broadened their appeal before. Uh, if you look at the way Disraeli broadened the appeal to working class men in the towns he enfranchised, if you look at Matt Millen, the way he really broadened the appeal amongst working class voters, and the way Thatcher broadened the appeal with uh, extending house ownership, extending share ownership, got a, a real new um, set of voters into the Tory coalition of voters. And that can be done again. The, the Tory party has constantly changed to broaden its appeal and, and um, meet with changing times. And we're, we're saying this is what the party needs to do again. And how confident are you that some or all of these policies will be taken up by the leadership? We're very hopeful they'll certainly be listened to. Uh, there, there was a, there's been a lot of enthusiasm for what we've been talking about um, this week as part of our launch, uh, we're, we're very hopeful that the people in the Conservatives understand the need to, to reach out to voters that the Conservatives haven't reached out to successfully at the past few elections. And we think these policies um, are a crucial way of doing that. And there's some who'll say that it'll be hard for the Conservatives to shed the party of the rich image while they've got David Cameron and George Osborne as their top team. And what's your, what are your thoughts? The important thing is, for for me, the big, big issue at the next election is going to be the cost of living. And the Conservatives have to show that they're doing something about the cost of living. So the, the freeze in fuel duty was such an important part of that. And we think it should be frozen or cut if possible over the next few years. Um, showing that they're standing up against big utility companies who seem to be ripping off the consumer is another element. Um, but the, the crucial thing is that, not where someone went to school, is that they're seen as understanding the concerns of hard-pressed people and being on their side. And what I would say when people talk about the education of the leadership, uh, the most successful Tory leader at winning working-class voters was Harold Macmillan, who came from a very patrician background. And you had, in 2001, you had William Hague from a pretty modest background. 2005, Michael Howard from a pretty modest background. 
And David Cameron was more successful at winning over working class voters than those two leaders were. So I think it's getting the message right and making sure that people feel that Conservatives are on their side, which is much more important than the, the kind of issue about where people went to school and this kind of thing. And so the two years out from the election, do you think that the Conservatives can gather enough support to potentially win outright next time? I think it's absolutely possible, yes. Uh, the, the two key points for me are, one, that Labour does look disengaged on quite a few issues on from their traditional vote on, say, welfare, on immigration, on the economy, on Europe. Um, and there is an opportunity there for the Conservatives to say, look, your old party has deserted you on all these issues, it doesn't stand up for you anymore. Um, and we really understand your concerns. This is why we're doing this. This is why we would do this if we had a majority. Um, but let's not pretend it's going to be easy. Um, Conservatives need by, probably to win by about seven points to win the next election. Uh, so they, they do need to really focus on these key challenges that we've set out. But there is a real opportunity that Labour's detachment from its traditional support, supporters uh, has given the Conservatives, if they get the message right, to I think, yes, win an overall majority next time. And, and one of the important things about this campaign is not just winning marginal seats next time, but also getting in a challenging position for 2020, 2025, in those seats where Conservatives are third place now. It's important they try and get second place back at the next election so they can be seen as major challengers in those seats. Second place first was an old political mantra, and I think it's really important because if you're second, you can be seen as the big challengers, and that's so important for campaigning. Thanks, David. Thank you very much. with Michael Brooks who's our science columnist you'll see him every week in the front of the magazine and Alex Hearn who although our economics blogger likes also to be called junior space correspondent and we're going to talk about the search for extraterrestrial life which Michael you've written about in the magazine this week that's right and this idea that we could very soon become the only country with a government sponsored alien hunting program it's a fantastic possibility. I really <laughs> like it. Um, no country in the world touches this because it's seen as ridiculous. The only country that ever did was America, where it was perfectly respectable until sort of a couple of decades ago when one of the senators pointed out that it was costing money and, and there were no little green men anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, and then NASA suddenly found that it was having its SETI budget cut. You know, it wasn't allowed to look for extraterrestrials anymore. Um, and since then, of course, nobody really has bothered. Um, and it's always been seen as a stupid thing to do, but it, it's not. It's not. No. So why isn't it? Well, it's not because um, f for a start, you know, Arthur C. Clarke once said, um, sometimes I think there's life out there in the universe and sometimes I think we're alone. Either way, it's staggering. You know, the, the implications are so huge. So, you know, we might find that evolution has happened on another world. Or we, you know, we might find, and we can never prove it, that we are actually alone, and that kind of makes something special out of us, which is kind of weird as so well. Either way, it's a valid point of inquiry. Yeah, I think so. I think it's really, you know, it's got to be an important question: is has evolution happened elsewhere? Is there other intelligence? You know, we know that that uh, evolution on Earth was always going to end up in, in with intelligent life, effectively. You know, that's the kind of the, the route it goes down, and uh, and so if it's happened anywhere else, it should produce intelligence. And. I think I'm right in saying that the, the group of scientists who are pitching for this money, it's a relatively small amount of money they want. What are they going to do with it? Well, they want to buy time on a, a network of telescopes that is sort of starting up in the UK called E-Merlin. 
And and the way science works is that you know you get your funding for your telescopes, and then you sort of outsource them, uh, outsource the you know the, the ability to use them. So if anybody wants to kind of spend some time uh, looking at looking for signals on these telescopes, they have to pay for it, which is why you know they're looking for this million pounds a year just to be able to kind of do a few tests, have a bit of a list, and see what you know see what they can find. Um, and it just seems like a reasonable amount of money these days. <laughs> it's a million pounds, right? It's a yeah. million pounds. Yeah. Wouldn't it be terrible if it turns out that the signals had come in one of the times when someone else was using the radio telescopes to spy on China? Well, exactly. I mean, this is the problem, is that we, we're you know, real sort of needle-in-a-haystack territory and that occasionally we'll look. And you know, we had this one thing in 1977 called the WOW signal where we thought we'd found alien... Uh, alien, we had alien contact, and and it never happened again. But then we have hardly been looking, so you know. And one of the things you mentioned, one of the theories that you mentioned in your column, is the idea that we should be broadcasting a sort of "hello, we're here" type signal. Yeah, I've been in rooms with scientists where they almost fights have broken out. You know, raised <laughs> voices, lots of shouting, very bad tempers over this because um, it's one of those things that, that you know. Some people say, well. The precautionary principle tells you not to do this because they might come and kill us. You know, if they find we're here, they might come and kill us. It would be the most staggering way to go, though. <laughs> it's going to be better than global warming, surely. Exactly. I mean, the the amazing thing is just that, like you say, if if we're alone, it's outrageous. But if there's something else out there, then that raises the question of why is it so rare? Why? Yeah. You know, it's it's Fermi's paradox. It's this thing of given everything we know about the vast vastly different types of planets that there are, vastly mm. different parts of the solar system, and life on ours, shouldn't there be a lot more? Mm. And you, you come up with some of the ideas against that. that well, I mean, the, 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 my favourite idea is that, is that there is other civilizations out there, but they're so advanced they're going around killing all the other civilizations, which is, you know, it's called the deadly it's, probe scenario. It's, yeah, it's also the, the plot of an Alistair Reynolds science fiction. Yeah, well, I think all of these things have been taken up by science fiction, or, and, or started by yeah. science fiction, right? And then there's the, there's the more dull one isn't there that it t- so, uh, someone's suggesting that basically wireless communications is just something that you grow out of as a civilization relatively quickly. yeah yeah that, you know 80 uh, years ago we were broadcasting massive lossy radio signals into yeah. the air now it all comes through cables and yeah maybe just that's a brief period uh, well it, i mean everything's a brief period because we're you know we're in this situation where we broadcast a signal from the arecibo telescope in 1974 which was designed to be it was like a a, a binary digital version of you know, here's what a man looks like. Here's what a bit of DNA mm. looks like. You know, and uh, and we we fired it at a galaxy. I think it was M31, and we just fired it out there, and it won't be there for another twenty one thousand years. <laughs> and then how long do we fire it for? <laughs> yeah, like, very yeah, much I, a long term project. So you know, everything is so far away. You know that mm. that will be why there's been no contact. You know, in a, in a, in the universe of the size that we know it is, you know, it, there's no reason to believe there isn't other life out there, the intelligent life out there, but it will be so far away that the chances of any contact are just negligible. And I wanted to ask you as well about a thing that I remember from when I was a teenager, this um, this screensaver you could download that um, was a sort of early crowdsourced. Seti at, yeah. at home, yeah. Is, does that still go on? I'm or? not sure if that's still running. I don't think it is somehow. But... I wasn't convinced it was ever real. <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought it was just a kind of pretty moving graph. I didn't think it actually... No, it, it was real. It was a great idea. I mean, it's kind of, you know, one of the first sort of crowdsourcing mm. kind of ideas. But, um, yeah, I don't know what came of it. I don't think anybody sort of detected it. I think it's just that computing power is so cheap now yeah. that SETI doesn't get as... Get SETI can mm. 
by we should, we should, we yeah, should yeah, in perhaps, fact, yeah. maybe just go into a bit what SETI is. We haven't really talked about that. So, yeah, it's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, which is something that, you know, we've always, we've done for, you know, for decades, sort of scientifically speaking. Mm. Um, but it's always been done by amateurs, really. I mean, fact, so uh, the you know, people who are in this group, they are... Amateurs, enthusiasts. Well, I mean, the, the people who want to start this up in the UK are, are, are you know, good researchers. Mm. But um, the 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 US version of SETI, ever since NASA's um, funding got cut, it was always uh, done by people who were funded by philanthropists. So the the Hewlett Packard sort of people, mm. you know, the Silicon Valley types. Um, Paul Allen of Microsoft also funded, you know, loads of telescopes. Um, so it's sort of it's almost been like a hobbyist kind of thing all along. Do you think both of you were ever going to be able to treat this idea seriously scientifically? That it's ever we're ever going to divorce it from the idea that little green men might suddenly appear and want to be friends with us? I hope so. Whether I think so, I don't know. Mm. It, there's no reason why why it ought not to be. But it does. I mean, on the face, yeah. some of the things you've also written recently about this new discovery that we can now grow liver cells in mice, um, human liver cells. To me, that's no less extraordinary or alien. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah. Um, than this, you know. I mean, I I think that eventually yeah, you know, people took it very seriously until this U.S. senator started really taking the Mickey out of the whole mm. thing, and then it became this kind of object of ridicule. And um, and I think that we can get back to the point where it's it's taken seriously. Um, it's just one branch of science. There's, mm. You know, there's plenty. You know, there's there's people who levitate frogs. You know, with <laughs> magnetic fields in science. And well. You know, people do strange things, but I don't think searching for aliens is among them. Mm. Well, thanks very much for coming, Michael. Thanks very much, Alex. You're welcome. I'm joined by our blogger Alex Andre, who has written for us on all kinds of subjects, everything from Greece to the economy to Mervyn King being a child with a dummy, um, to this week writing about Ed Miliband. But let's um, let's start with Greece, because I know you're about to go back over there. Can you describe for people who are totally out of the loop on what's happened in Greece, what we've seen over the last year or two there? Um, it's basically a, a slip back from a developed country to a developing country. I know that sounds unfathomable, um, and it's something that we only thought went one way, but it, it turns out it doesn't. What you've seen is a, a huge um, drop in wages, um, up to 60% cut to pensions. Any kind of benefits have been decimated. You have youth unemployment, Estimates ranging anything from 15 to 25 to 30 percent, um, and a far right wing party which is constantly gaining ground, it seems. So, this is Golden Dawn, yeah, yeah, their Golden sort of Dawn, Greeky swastika logo and their big rallies, yeah, 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 which they insist is not a swastika but a sort of a play on the ancient Greek meander. But I mean, it looks like a swastika, there's a big 
sort of eagle on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but how much popular support does Golden Dawn have at the moment? A lot. I mean, for me, it was a big culture shock because actually it happened because of work commitments that I hadn't been back to Greece for about two years until about a year and a half um, ago. And so I missed a whole load of stuff. And I suddenly got there and it, it had been a great sort of shame to be a Golden Dawn supporter. Mm. It would be something that people whispered about in the supermarket with pity for someone else. They would say, oh, so-and-so's son is a Golden Dawn supporter. You know, mm. it, it was like that. And then two years later, I go to Greece and it's sort of, you know, people are wearing T-shirts for it and buttons for it and they're, they're sort of discussing very loudly and very openly in public um, you know, how's the situation with the Pakistanis in your town? And, you know, the Albanians are terrible in our town. And, and it, it, it had just escalated out of control within the space of a couple of years. So you mentioned migration. Actually, how much immigration to Greece is there and from which countries? I mean, the, the problem is that there is a lot of illegal migration to Greece. Mm. And so it's, it's impossible to estimate. There's a lot of it. Um, the, the root of the discontent was legal migration from Albania. Um, there was a point about 15 years ago when um, basically Greece decided to, in a controlled way, open its borders to Albanians. Um, and that caused a lot of discontent because Greece had been an incredibly liberal society, anti-apartheid, big rally, rallies for um, sort of civil rights and all of that. But it had only been so in theory <laughs> because it was completely uniformly white Christian. Mm. And so it could afford to be incredibly magnanimous in matters of civil liberties. Um, but when it actually got a real wave of immigration into the country, people started grumbling very seriously. Now, the problem with that was that physically, um, Albanians don't look that different from Greek people. And so language was a way to differentiate, mm. to start with. But as the years went on, and Albanian children went to school in Greece, they have almost completely integrated. And it's now quite difficult, just by looking at someone, to tell whether they're Greek or Albanian. Mm. And that is, it's quite a key ingredient of discrimination to be able to spot the yeah. subject of your discrimination. If you can't spot them, it's really very difficult to, um, to target them. And so what happened then was that there was a lot of illegal immigration from North African countries, Syria, um, and places like that, that are experiencing a lot of civil strife and people are desperate to sort of leave it behind. And Greece is, is fairly indefensible border-wise. We're talking about, you know, 6,000 tiny islands, mm. a huge coastline. Um, so essentially, people would would get on a fishing boat from um, from Egypt or 
um, and, and just come over and find a quiet cove somewhere and, and more. It's really almost impossible to control. And talking a bit more about the kind of things that you've been writing about, um, what do you think are the big kind of left-wing causes at the moment that you, that you feel that aren't being heard in the media that you want to talk about at the moment? Um, well, I, I wrote recently about um, Ed Miliband's speech on um, sort of uh, the funding of political parties, yeah. Labour's relation to unions. And I wrote partly on principle, because I think there is a, there is a huge danger in an environment which is partly fed by social media, where anyone who sticks their head above a, par a parapet and has any kind of new idea gets smacked down really hard. And we condition our politicians in that way. And so I thought, despite you know the problems in the detail of what he was proposing, that what he was proposing was essentially right. Mm. And that it was quite a brave thing to do, to propose that. I was gobsmacked looking at News at 10 on the BBC that evening, absolutely gobsmacked. While the speech was going on, my timeline of journalists from all over the spectrum seemed to be in instant agreement that the announcement about MPs' second jobs and a, a cap on funding was really the big surprise and the mm. big headline of the thing. By the time um, BBC News at 10 came round, it had been completely um, expunged from his speech. There wasn't a single mention of it. Um, I actually rewound and looked again at Nick Robinson's report and it was all about the, the proposals to do with the Labour's relationship with the union and there was not even a single mention that he had proposed that MPs give up second jobs and there's a cap to party funding. But I find that really interesting. I mean, this is something that gets our columnist Mehdi Hassan very wound up, is this idea that the BBC is constantly sort of slammed by papers like the Mail and Telegraph for being institutionally left-wing. Yeah. And actually, they make such an effort not to be, because they're so worried about that, but then actually, that you're right, I feel that sometimes they can end up going, you know, going the other way and actually being almost institutionally right-wing because they feel like that's the best defence against being pilloried. No, I th I think there's a there's an answer somewhere in the middle that that can answer uh, both charges, um, and and that I don't think has been fully considered, um, because there was a, a lot of allegations of left wing bias and uh, EU um, friendly bias um, during the, the years of Labour, and now there's loads of allegations of right wing bias. Well, the simple answer might be that the BBC is pro-state. It is, well, Whatever, an establishment bias. Absolutely, it's an establishment bias. So if EU is deeply unpopular at a particular um, time, the BBC is likely to toe that line. And if we have a Tory government at the moment, they're, they're more likely. And I think it's, it's partly to do with a sort of culture of grey pinstripe but it's also partly to do with, I'm sorry to say, a laziness. 
essentially government departments have a huge publicity machine at their fingertips. They can issue very detailed press releases. The easiest thing for a journalist to do is to just cut and paste. I think we've definitely seen that with Ian Duncan Smith's uh, the Department of Work and Pension Statistics about the number of people who supposedly stopped claiming benefit once med- medical tests were yeah. introduced. And then that yeah. turned out to... What's that great T-shirt? I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, But then not before that was become a kind of zombie statistic that kept popping up everywhere. Before we go, one thing I want to ask you, because I think this is, I've been talking this morning about um, the commentariat as it is. Your main, <laughs> am, I, am I part well, of it now? Well, this is officially? what I want to know, is that, you know, your your day job is pretending to be other people. Yeah. Um, do you feel that that gives you a freedom that you you would, you know, you would find hard to give up? Do you think you say things that you think maybe a, a, somebody who is you know in that bubble whose friends are all journalists who is a journalist professionally wouldn't say maybe i mean i think it's more complicated than that um <laughs> that's how we end all the podcasts it's, I think. it's just i guess i have acquired a, a, a voice that reaches more people than it did two years ago when i wasn't sort of writing opinion pieces um but I, I neither have the skills nor the authority of a professional journalist. I think that's also fair to say. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a strong opinion about stuff. Mm. I have a background in economics and law that I guess allows me to be able to find my way around a document and research stuff. So I'm decent at fact-getting, but I don't, you know, I can't... I'm not in a position to call someone and say, hi, this is Alex Andrea from the New Statesman. Mm. Can you give us your comment on X? Um, I guess so, my question is whether or not you would drop anybody in it by saying that professional, the commentaria is too homogenous in all the different ways because of the way that it's constructed. And from somebody who's slightly more outside of that, do you hmm. feel that? Do you feel that you're seen very much as a kind of outsider voice? I, I think... And I find myself increasingly doing it as well. There's an enormous amount of self-censorship. Um, the, That's interesting, because uh, you don't strike me as a writer who's particularly worried about what other people think of you. Well, yes, which is why I say that I find it occasionally and I find it quite odd when mm. it happens to me. And I can only multiply that times 100 for someone that you know writes for a, the print edition you know, the editorial of a print edition publication. Um, I can only imagine what the pressure must be on that person and how many times you start typing a a sentence Mm. and end up deleting it and saying, God, I'd like to say that, I think that, but I just can't. It's funny, isn't it? Nick Cohen says very much that you should never meet. Politicians will always be desperate to meet you. You should never meet them because it's so much harder to be rude about people that you've met. You know, it's sort of kind of, but he's lovely. He's got a lovely kitten and I can't possibly, but you know, but I think his policies are completely wrongheaded. It becomes much, I just wonder if then all this kind of everybody saying, you know, bloggers getting hated on, if there isn't actually a, a, a kind of quite a profound challenge to the commentary from people who don't feel beholden in the same way. They they are freer to say what they like, for sure. Um, that also um, makes a different a difference, I think, to the weight of what they say. Mm. I think that ease of being able to put something out there like a belch is 
it, you know, yeah. it, it, it also has less value than something that's been deeply thought about and researched properly. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, I do read a lot, of, a lot of pieces that I think there really was no reason for this to be written other than fill space. Because essentially, it has nothing new to offer. It has nothing of significance to say. So you know, it's a it's a sort of nice summary of what's happened in X area to date. But there are three hundred of those around. Yes, and probably on that note, I uh, leave you with the always interesting Alexandre. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Elena Margolis, who writes a regular blog on our website, with a very specific beef that we want to talk about, and this is music festivals. Uh, we've had Glastonbury recently, and there's now a whole summer of them stretched out in front of us. Uh, you wrote a piece for us a while ago about why you particularly hate music festivals, but you also have a belief that everyone else does as well. I'm, I'm convinced that anyone who claims to enjoy music festivals is, is, is peer pressured into saying that. I think it's this weird kind of self-perpetuating situation that young people have got themselves into where we, where we have to claim that we love doing horrible things. Horrible things like sleeping on the ground and jumping yeah. around in the mud and paying eight pounds for a burger. And... Exactly. I mean, I think that it's people. People think of um, of Generation Y as as hedonistic, but I'm starting to think that actually we're more masochistic. <laughs> I mean, I, there's there's this definite drive towards I, I don't know, sort of taking taking pride in doing very uncomfortable awful things and spending a lot of money on it that's what really sticks in my throat is how much it costs it's very you, expensive uh, uh, i mean i think an email from a friend this year asking me if i wanted to go to a, uh, a music festival included the line oh yeah and it'll cost 200 pounds <laughs> <laughs> which for me was an instant deal breaker but people willingly surrender that and more absolutely i used to be one of them hmm. I, I feel like this, this enormous weight has been lifted now that I've sort of, you know, come out against music festivals. Now all my friends know that I, I don't want to go to them. So, so. but what, what prompted this moment for you? What made you suddenly think? Uh, I think I, I've been, this summer I've been invited to a few festivals and I, I was sort of, I gave sort of wishy-washy, oh, you know, it depends on money type answers. And... I think I realised I need to stop lying to these people. <laughs> I need to actually admit that I would rather chew off my own hand than than go to kind uh, go to a festival mm. ever again. Mm. Any festival. <laughs> and because I mean, it's not just the personal discomfort though, as well, is it? I mean, as bad as that is, I think there's also um, something to do with the actual music because I I don't know much about sound engineering, but I think I could say with full confidence that you don't get the best sound from musical instruments in the middle of a field? Absolutely not. No, it's, I mean, uh, I don't know a great deal about um, about sound engineering either, but you can, you know, you don't, you, I don't think you have to, to realise that listening to a band in the middle of a field, not not great quality, not, not so no, good. No, absolutely not. And, <laughs> and you could perhaps 
just put things out there you could perhaps pay less money and hear them better indoors <laughs> <laughs> and then go home to your bed yes that would be very yeah. yeah that i don't i don't you're absolutely right people are deluding yeah. themselves but i'm not quite sure how it's it's happened how how has the country become so so mass deluded about this i i i'm not sure i think it's it's almost a hysteria it's <laughs> i think festivals just just seem to get more and more popular there are more of them there are all these sort of new boutique ones coming up every year and uh it's just it, it, it's got it's got out of hand you know <laughs> people people need to it's gone too far it's yeah this it's gone too far it's <laughs> we need we all need to just all at the same time count to three and say no i didn't enjoy it either and then we can stop yeah i think we we all need to have this sort of you know almost like I am Spartacus moment Absolutely. with um, with with festivals where we all just admit that um, it's definitely something I thought with the um, the the recent coverage of Glastonbury and other festivals that the default presumption by all the presenters there is that you wish you were there too yeah I find that insulting yes <laughs> absolutely well thanks very much Anna. Um we won't be seeing you at a festival this time <laughs> Today's podcast was presented by me, Caroline Crampton, with Alex Andreu, Michael Brooks, George Eaton, Alex Hearn, Eleanor Margolis and David Skelton. It was produced by me, edited by Philip Morn, and our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. More information about how to subscribe to our podcast feed can be found at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.